Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening. And the day is almost over. Bring us into your light, O God, that we may know in all our senses the truth about you and about us, about heaven and earth, about stranger and kin. Embody within us and enact through us the power that overwhelms death with new and unending life. Amen. Join me in the call to worship. God breathes into existence all that is. She instructs that what is may flourish. He rebukes the notion that flourishing should be competitive or belong only to a privileged few. They persist in profound presence, promising wholeness, harmony, and perpetual peace. God shows up for us and with us, all of us, no matter what, and in spite of everything else. We know that somehow this is enough. In gratitude to the one who gives all that is good, we offer our whole selves in worship. Words like instruction and rebuke can be hard to take because they are all too frequently misused and abused by people who are decidedly not God. But from the one who is God, instruction and rebuke may be received alongside life-giving breath as a gift, invitation to real, meaningful life. And so we confess our sins before God and one another, not fearing punishment, but hopeful that in the mercy of Christ there is a more fruitful way to live. Confident in Christ's unfathomably deep well of mercy, let us pray. Lord Jesus, judge of nations, we confess that we have not seen your face among our neighbors in need. We have not shared our food with the hungry. We have not offered clothes to the destitute or shelter to the homeless. We have not welcomed the stranger, nor have we visited prisoners. We have not paid attention to these, your brothers, sisters, and siblings in Christ. And in our neglect, we have failed to serve you. Lord, forgive us. Open our eyes to recognize your beloved family and give us the blessing of sincere repentance that we may know the joy of eternal life with you and all the saints in this world and in the world to come. Friends and siblings, God seeks the lost sheep and feeds them with justice. Forgiven and freed, turn then and live fully in Christ our Lord. The peace of Christ be with you and flow through you. Our first reading comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 33 through 37. Listen for the word of God. When immigrants live in your land with you, you must not cheat them. Any immigrant who lives with you must be treated as if they are one of your citizens. You must love them as yourself because you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. 
I am the Lord your God. You must not act unjustly in a legal case involving measures of length, weight, or volume. You must have accurate scales and accurate weights, an accurate ephah and an accurate hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You must keep all my rules and all my regulations and do them. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Let us continue listening for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now when the human one comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other, just as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who will receive good things from my father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. For I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done it for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go unto unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? And then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I received an email on Friday that I've known was coming for some time now, but I didn't know from where it would come or when. A Presbyterian pastor emailed to inform me that one of her former youth, who is enrolled here at UGA, has contracted COVID and is quarantined in his dorm room for at least the next two weeks. While his mother has already made the trip to deliver a mini-fridge and the first round of groceries, it's a long trip, which the family simply can't make. 
on the regular or at the drop of a hat. And so this pastor emailed to ask if I and if we at the Presbyterian Student Center would be available to respond to any needs that he might have, that this young man might have between now and the end of his isolation. Uh, a refill of groceries, perhaps, a conversation partner on the other side of two masks and a door. Now, hearing the story, I imagine that we all probably made the connection in our heads without any trouble. A Presbyterian pastor calls the university's Presbyterian Student Center to tend to the needs of a Presbyterian churchgoer who attends that university. There's an unstated but often called upon link in our denominational identity. We even refer to ourselves as a connectional church, um, an assumption that we're all a part of the same church. Even though it has different names in different places, it might be Westminster Church here or First Church there, but, but all one church. It's really a lovely idea. And yet if you think a little bit about it, Presbyterianism is kind of a strange link between people. It's a strange request to make of a person you've never met. I've never met the pastor who sent the email, nor the young man who is sick, but she chose to email me and through me, us, presumably because we are, at least in name, Presbyterians, to go and run errands to move into relatively close proximity to an infected stranger in the middle of a global pandemic, the official death toll of which is now approaching one million people globally. What reason did she have to believe that I, a stranger, would agree to such a strange request? What reason can make sense of my immediate response to this stranger asking a favor for one who is yet another stranger. Yes, of course, we're available for anything he needs. Here's my contact info. Just tell me how we should be in touch. Is our shared 500-year-old denominational heritage really a link that merits such a request and such a response absence any other connection? Well, when you put it that way. There is a way of looking at the world which can hardly make sense of this interaction between strangers. It expects a call to be made or an email to be sent to a family friend or, or at least an acquaintance of the person who is in need, someone whose name and face are already familiar, whose affection has already been demonstrated, someone who, in short, has a conscious stake in the well-being of the person who is suffering. I did not have a conscious stake in the well-being of this fellow Presbyterian, if, if for no other reason than I simply didn't know he existed prior to receiving this email. Now, it's unlikely that the pastor assumed that upon learning the young man was a Presbyterian, that my tribal Presbyterian loyalty would kick in and I would I would suddenly be willing to move mountains to protect a member of my tribe. We'll get into why that's unlikely later, but, but that's also not that uncommon a way of seeing the world. See, in the tribal way of seeing the world, people who have a conscious stake in someone's well-being are more likely 
to oblige a request on that person's behalf because in this way of seeing the world, people are more or less worthy of our time and our energy according to our personal evaluation of them. What groups do they belong to? Are they my groups? What language do they speak? Is it my language? What color is their skin? Is it my color? What flags do they wave? Are they my flags? The Boy Scouts of America managed to distill this way of seeing the world into a pithy slogan, God, Family, Country. A 1950s book published with the same title follows it up with a, a subheading, Our Three Great Loyalties, as if loyalties to family and country are somehow the most godly of loyalties. Well, today's passages from Leviticus and from the end of Matthew's gospel reveal a great irony to that slogan. See, to give our highest loyalty to God according to these scriptures, excludes the possibility of privileging family or country over the needs of foreigners and strangers, for instance, over the needs of people for whom we are inclined to show the least regard. The stranger, the foreigner living among you, must be treated as are treated the citizens, says Leviticus. Whatever you do or refuse to do, for the most vulnerable, outcast, and isolated among you, you, you do or you refuse to do for God. To put it another way, if my humanitarian devotion does not extend itself beyond my preferential groups to the well-being of the entire human family, then no amount of religious devotion, no special title in front of my name can hide my refusal to hear and heed the clear commandment of God. In another account of Jesus' life and teachings, a lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't bite. He, he replies, you know. What are the commandments? And the lawyer replies, Love God, love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, right. So go do that and you'll live. And then the lawyer reveals that in addition to being a lawyer, he was also a good Boy Scout. He'd earned his God and country pin. And so he asked the question that is of great importance to people who see the world in this tribal way. He says, yes, yes, of course, love God and love my neighbor. Got it. Uh, but who precisely is my neighbor? I mean, in order to get eternal life, do I have to love the people who don't look like me? Do I have to love the people who don't pray like me? Do I have to love the people who wave different flags than I do? And what about the people who clearly don't love me? Do I have to love them? It's worth noting that Jesus doesn't answer the lawyer's question here. He refuses to define who is worthy of love, and instead he puts the responsibility back on the lawyer for neighborly love. Don't worry about who to count as your neighbor and who to exclude. That's not the point. 
You just go and be a good neighbor. You just go and love. If you do that, the life that you come seeking will take care of itself. What you do or refuse to do for the person who is least deserving of neighborly status in your judgment is what you do for God. We don't even have to get to the punishment part of this passage for this to be a hard teaching to take. Jesus seems to be saying that salvation, if we desire it, is not only to love the people I might prefer to ignore, which is hard enough in itself, but it is to love anyone and everyone, even those people who hate and oppress me. Now this is admittedly not the most fashionable position to take in the days of cancel culture. Are we sure that Jesus didn't cancel Herod or Pilate or Caesar or Judas? Well, to be fair, no. No, I'm not sure in all of those cases. Here's what I am sure of. Whenever people try to draw boundaries around the love of God and the possibility of forgiveness, Jesus' response is to push those boundaries further and further out to include at least the possibility of a wider welcome than I generally want to offer. We love and forgive not because someone deserves it, but because the cycle of hatred and violence must come to an end. It must be broken. And through our union with Christ and Him crucified, it is now within our power to be ones who break it. We can be the body in which the hate stops. We can absorb the hate and the violence as Christ does on the cross. That's unconditional love. That is eternal life. It's true, there is good reason to be offended at the eternal punishment portion of tonight's passage from Matthew's Gospel. But if we just take a leap of faith for a moment and try to accept that or understand that as a word spoken in love because we believe that God is love, we might land on something like this. Eternal life is universal love and nothing less. It is genuinely caring for the people who are hardest for us to see as human, much less as siblings. And only when we see the world and those people in this anti-tribal way can we experience the eternal life of the universal Christ. And only by the gift of God through the Holy Spirit may we begin to glimpse the world in this way. See, that's why I believe that it's highly unlikely that the pastor who emailed me about her former youth member who now has COVID 
was counting on some strange Presbyterian tribalism to influence my response. No, she was counting on my and on our knowledge of and commitment to the life and teachings of Jesus because we are Christians, because we are followers of Christ who teaches this strange way. We believe that everyone belongs to God. And because we believe that everyone belongs to God, we know in the depth of our souls that we all belong to one another. No exceptions. Amen. Oh